1: hello hello in today's show we're going to be addressing among many many other things the important issue of when washing up liquid first started being used would you like to have a punt on that one today we're at the museum of brands packaging and advertising i'm n quentin Wolfe, and this is londonist out loud London, Michaelmas term lately over London? OK, you know where you oh. are Radical transformation
0: Very radical
2: People transformation morally outraged with what's going well, on I got very excited this week Seems reasonable, doesn't it? As soon as you scratch the surface, you realise gore happened all across London Every open square really, would have a gallery place
0: called the Kittle Saw your Geordie's Grace riding on a goosey what the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> the man is tired of London, he's tired of London. So life. what was the first thing that caught your eye? The South has an overstuffed walrus.
1: It's,
2: it's a very important history.
1: A
0: handwritten letter from Charles Dickens. There's a
1: piece of information we're missing here somewhere. You sneak through the city, meet, what, amassing what, yourself in the sight. And for the, song, the Jewish songs, community,
0: who came over in their tens of thousands from uh, Russia, from Poland. We are doing a modern take on Morris dancing.
1: When did he think the second coming was going to happen? Yes, uh, Boris he wants to put an airport <laughs> the, t- the tone with which Boris has announced it is announced that is fatigue
2: yes the city is always changing uh, people frequently say to me "You know, won't it be wonderful when it's finished and I say no it'll be dreadful no, it'll mean it's dead inform and entertain that's what it's about London
0: is a modern Babylon
1: that's very true can we have some of the detail here I'm surrounded by my childhood in fact I think I'm surrounded by a lot of people's uh, childhoods, this is definitely a nostalgia trip I am uh, at the Museum of Brands The, the official name is the Museum of Brands Packaging and Advertising with me
2: is the founder Robert Opie Hi Robert Good afternoon, and I'm very excited now because you're going to get a feast of nostalgia. I think this is going to be a tour, a journey, not only through your childhood, but your parents and grandparents. To one side of us, we've got
1: an an enormous collection of vintage televisions and wirelesses. I think that's probably the better name for them rather than radios. Then on all the other walls that we can see here, it's as if we were in a, a gift shop, a tobacconist, a poster shop, a toy shop and a chocolatier... All tied into one. It's a fantastic array of things that we might recognize. We've got the Quality Street couple here, the soldier taking chocolates from the lady. Uh, well, t- too many things to mention here.
2: It is a, a, a bowl of memories, and you can pick and choose which ones you want to engage with because actually on display there are over 12,000 items. And that will take a lot of absorbing when you get here. So we always recommend people come with enough time because it will take a little longer than you expect. Yes, you're tucked away very discreetly. I gather you've uh, migrated down from Gloucester. That's right. The museum first opened in 1984 and we were there for 17 years. The lease ran out and then we were looking around for another space. And although I would never said we should be in London because that's where I've always lived and I always knew that in London there are so many other attractions to go to, we might be swamped. And in certain ways, this has proved quite difficult to tell people that we're here, you know, because there are so many attractions in London. It's not the first thing you think of. But believe you me, this has got something literally for everybody. And even though you might think this is a very kind of British tour... We get huge numbers of people from overseas. I can remember one day a family of four turned up from Mexico City and they'd all had the chance to see something in London and one of them had picked the Museum of Brands. So they arrived here and I can remember talking to them on their way out and they said, this is fabulous. You know, we picked up a lot of our memories because so many of these brands are global. And yet they were intrigued and excited to see the story, the culture, the lifestyle of Britain. And I thought, if we've cracked four people, two two teenagers and parents from Mexico City... How can we fail? (laughs) (laughs) Can we
1: go back to 1984? What were the first steps into this collection?
2: Well, in fact, you have to go a bit further back than 1984 because, believe it or not, this year, it'll be 50 years since I started saving contemporary packaging. So, as a 16-year-old, having spent 10 years collecting many other different things and sort of doing my apprenticeship in understanding how to collect what you needed to do, the kind of whole critical mass of saving things, I then realised that we were actually throwing away something very pertinent to our daily lives, the products, the packaging, the brands. This was something which we were now totally relying upon as part of our um, social scene, as well as our absolute daily life. And so unless I was going to record this, it would totally disappear. I didn't know anybody saving everyday packaging, the the breakfast seals, the instant coffee jars, the soap powder packs, all those kind of very, very ordinary things which we discard every single day and yet reflect our culture and lifestyle. So I started just saving the very ordinary things that were around me. And it was a little while before I realised you could find the earlier things. So when I had my first full-time job in market research, suddenly one day it dawned upon me that I should be looking at the origins of these brands. Now, that moment arrived when I was at the Ryan Pond in Kensington Gardens. It had been drained for the first time since the 1930s. 1930s, and there amongst the mud flats were some milk bottles. So I just waded in and pulled out half a dozen, and that's when this whole realisation happened, that here was a vibrant society which was literally being discarded.
1: So you weren't going for mass at first because I was thinking until it's got the validity of a museum around it this collection runs the risk of being as symptomatic of a, a particular state of mind, maybe a medicalized uh, state of some sort but, but actually you're instantly talking about the, the history of each of these articles
2: that you've discovered. Well of course, but I had to build up my knowledge and you can't just gather things together and suddenly be uh, an all singing dancing knowledge. It was... Looking at how the construction worked, you know, it was a lot like creating a huge jigsaw puzzle and slowly all gathering the pieces. Now you keep on having to gather those pieces and see how they fit together. And often you get those pieces not fitting correctly in the first place. You then have to find a few more pieces to make that join to that. And you know how it is with a jigsaw puzzle, you get the faces and the things that are relatively easy in the edges to kind of give you the kind of borders. So you might try and find the very earliest things. But of course, every time I find one earlier item, I was thinking May- perhaps there's another earlier item than that. So it was a long process and I started that particular looking for the earlier things. You know, here we are in Notting Hill and we're fortunately close to Portobello Road and that's where I actually started looking for these things. I've sort of come full circle geographically. But nonetheless, it took me quite a while to get the understanding of this retailing and consumer revolution. So, in the early days, I was just going to antique markets and to antique shops and talking to other people and perhaps other collectors who were collecting things which are really well established, like matchbox labels and matches, um, perhaps... um, cigarette cards and one or two people were collecting cigarette packets so it was going on a little bit but I was really now exploring that's what I wanted to do I wanted to do something that other people hadn't done already because I wanted a bit of point and a bit of purpose to this and not just manically trying to gather everything I wanted to understand it and this was absolutely vital so the early years in the kind of early 70s I really kind of got to grips with the subject, and then I approached the Victorian Albert Museum to do a, a one-man exhibition, and that actually opened in 1975, and was, I mean, thrilling for me and thrilling for, for thousands of people who came to it. In fact, for the very first time in the history of the v they actually had to close the front doors. Something that's intriguing me about this puzzle
1: metaphor that you use is the idea that there is a discernible completeness available and when I think of a redesign of a product for example it seems to me as as an outsider to, to branding I guess um, or a passive appreciator of, of branding, um, that each product goes through many, many iterations. Do you have a sense of how many different versions of the packaging or the branding for each item there is, and therefore how many there are to collect? Is it a case of being able to tick the
2: boxes? There is no way of knowing. I mean, I've been building up the histories of all these individual brands, and you start off with two or three items, you then get to 20 items, all being different, all little changes in the formula they produce for the design design. Today of course every every other year the major brands change their profile so you keep up to date with all these things so my jigsaw never has any boundaries Abacus Time keeps on going, and, of course, I'm still saving these new things as I come through the supermarkets, but also I will find a new design which I never knew existed. Sometimes I do know they existed because I've got an advertisement which shows it. So take one product like, um, I don't know, Thai Food Tea... um, they you've got a brand launched in 1903 and it changed and evolved during the, the 20s and the 30s and so on. It went into its wartime mode, you know, restrictive on, on um, cardboard and Apple went into a paper pack. Then it came into the supermarket era and became much more vibrant. And during that process, they were churning themselves from essentially a grey pack to a very bright red pack because it wanted to be very prominent on the shelf. Because suddenly you had the shopper saying, Where's my typhoon gone if it maintained it in a grey pack? Because it wouldn't shout from the shelf. So that was a big moment in the story of this whole packaging consumer world. Uh, right, that's very interesting. So you're, you're telling individual brand stories. That's right. Now, that's an excitement you're going to come across. (laughs) So I won't predict that too much. So Essentially, what you're going to do in the museum is we're going to go through our time tunnel, starting off in Victorian times, which is really the kind of springboard of this branding, packaging, colourful world. And then you'll go through each era, each decade thereafter, and then out at the end of the time tunnel at present day, and then into an area which is all about brands. And now we've got something like 80 individual brand histories. Well, we're going to step into that in just a moment. I've got one final question before
1: we do, though. Let me make sure I've understood the logistics of this right. You were living in London, but you
2: started a museum in Gloucester. Yeah, it's always a little bit mad, but, you know, that's the way these things happen. And, of course, starting a museum financially is unbelievably difficult. We had no funding, so it was a question of putting in our own money and then finding somewhere that was rent-free. When the lease gave up, then, of course, we had to move somewhere else.
1: Well, let's, without further ado, let's tuck into the Museum
2: of Brands,
1: Packaging, and Advertising.
0: Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 16,000 titles, try the Audible service on a 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to a CD. And they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist and click through.
1: We're a couple of steps in through the main doors and uh, we've got newspaper. Is that you up there with the bit? It is, yes. I mean, this is the story of my life as well as the story of the the consumer (laughs) world as well. I think you might be an imposter. I don't believe for a second that's you. <laughs> How today's junk becomes tomorrow's heritage. Uh, reads one of the headlines there from the Sunday Times. Wrapping up the meaning of life is it another... Is it just the packaging that you... Uh, collect
2: no. I mean, the, the packaging is the the reference point to things we're buying because it is the evidence of the product. So, it's the product I'm interested in. The brand, but of course you need the packaging because that's essentially what it is. But then, of course, it's much more than that. It's joining all those brands together to tell a, a massive retailing story. So, here in the museum, we go back certainly to Victorian times. Almost, it's almost. 200 years and it is a dramatic story because the way all these products and brands have changed our lives is unbelievable and we take these things for granted today Well let's now move in past
1: the Guinness commercials and John Knight's Royal Primrose Soap there's, well there's a, a woman who may well be welcoming the emancipation, she's very housewifed out there with her, <laughs> her basket of flowers and her Royal Soap What happened 200 years ago to ignite the
2: branding flame? This is always difficult to explain. There is no one point when it starts. It is a very, very gradual process. But over time, and you can go back to the Egyptians and the Romans and the ancient civilizations like the Greeks, and, of course, there was a consumer world happening then. They only had their own types of branding, in a sense, the little pottery marks and so on. There was individual type of... Um, pottery for different types of products and then all the way through from the 2,000 years ago to the uh, 1800s you're getting more and more new kind of products coming in and brands but they weren't necessarily being mass-produced so it was the industrial revolution which suddenly meant that it was possible to create millions of items rather than essentially kind of local markets and local cottage industries and many many different factories so you take something like soap soap has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years but it was always locally made so even in early Victorian times, there were maybe three or four hundred individual soap manufacturers. By the end of Victoria's reign, that was now decreasing as one manufacturer was taking over another or putting another one out of business. Because at that time, of course, you're now getting the infrastructure, you're getting a railway system, you're getting a canal system, which had been there for a little bit before, but you're also getting a road network as well. So distribution suddenly means you can get a national profile.
1: Also, I've I've had in my mind that maybe branding kind of transcends the product itself. So, for, for example, I could imagine that if you know that John Smith is a carpenter who makes fine chairs then you'll know that a John Smith chair is a good one. But it, it, it seems to me as though branding almost is John Smith, the name being able to be applied to toothpaste or soap or whatever it is, and it's, it's the name, the brand that one buys into even more than the product.
2: Like everything, is, it's more complicated than you might think. Of course, initially you get the grocer with the grocer's name above his shop, and then you get your tea or coffee or cocoa wrapped up by him in his own paper bag or wrapper with his name on it. So what we think of today as own labels from the supermarket is actually earlier often than the brand name. So somebody like um, Twinings, they go back over 300 years. But initially, they were just selling bulk tea. They weren't selling it in individual packs. It was probably not until somebody like John Horniman arrived in the 1830s, who started to actually individually pack his tea to guarantee the purity of the product. And that's the nugget, of course, that makes this vast change. It's not just that the industry now is getting mechanised, but it is also that we, as as a human, want to be guaranteed. We want the trust of the brand. We want to feel the confidence in the product we're buying. And that is coming through the brand name. And suddenly the brand owners realise that they can pre-package the product, individually wrap it at the point of manufacture. It means then that the grocer is only becoming a distribution centre, but the grocer then is selling on the confidence of the brand name. So Cadbury's and Fries and Roundtree's individually packing their own commodities, but putting all the trust That we want as a consumer into the brand name so that every time we go back to that shop, you know that the product is going to be the same quality and consistency that it was before, so you don't get all the adulteration that was going on in Victorian times. So in a way then as we move into the exhibition, what I'm I
1: think I'm expecting to see is that some of the earlier branding is going to speak very directly about those sort of reliability issues and how we can be sure that this is the one that's going to do the job, as opposed to for example a more modern, uh, slightly area branding, where we're shown a few interesting images and, and maybe the brand name and we, we can kind of... Uh, make up our mind what that all means
2: well of course and that's exactly what it is it's the manufacturer not only on his packaging but also in his advertising saying this is pure but he's saying like mr lever did with his sunlight soap i'm going to guarantee this product with a thousand pounds reward if you can find something wrong with it so he was giving the the customer the power to say i don't like this return it of course, it didn't happen a lot because these big manufacturers were so proud of their products and therefore successful because they were putting all the energy into making the product as good as it was possible and therefore knocking out the kind of the competition that was not doing it so well. So it's the survival of the fittest. It's Darwin's great theory about survival which is now taking over in this very um, extraordinary consumer world. That surprises me in a way
1: because I sort of had in mind that branding, there's a potential hollowness to it maybe, that the product needn't necessarily be as good as all that if the branding's up to scratch. But what you're saying is that
2: actually, no, it was an arms race of, of making the best product. And of course, the whole point of a brand, it is a consistent product. It's a brand that you come to trust. And that is something which is not just for this moment, but for years and generations to come. So it's a family grows up with a brand. A brand becomes rather like a friend to you. So you have your own circle of brands who are like friends. They give you those trust values that you want. They give you confidence. So you don't have to think too much or as much about what you're buying, because there is a brand name on the product. And therefore, that's the one that you know will be
1: good. Let's see how many of these as we move into uh, what seem to be sort of late Victorian
2: uh, era products. That's exactly it. We've got a recreation of a Victorian shop window before we actually move into the Victorian era itself. And here you've got brands which I know you'll recognize. You know, there is Cadbury's, there is Bolfrel, there is uh, uh, even something like Pure Stuff, who are no longer actually the major brand they used to be, but was a big brand at one time, Sunlight Soap.
1: We've also got Melon's Food Biscuits, we've got uh, Lipton's Delicious, br- well of course we know Lipton's, um, this is Chicory and Coffee, we have Swinburne's Patent Refined Isinglass,
2: I don't know what that product is. Well it's actually for putting, you make a mixture of it and you can put eggs in it, boiled eggs which will then keep a lot longer, we don't use it today in the same way as it wow. used to in the past. I'd, I'd buy some <laughs> if I knew where to get <laughs> We're
1: moving now into an area that's bedecked with gramophones and Victorian garb and lions with, yes, this whole imperial vibe going on here, lions with their paws resting on a a jar of London raspberry jam, no mistaking this, and here is uh, Her Majesty
2: too. Well, now we're in the Victorian era, and this is really the, the, the kind of museum story which not only looks at the the focus of this museum, which is the brands and the products and the packaging and the the advertising and so on, but it is also the consumer story. So the context here is not just the products, but also the toys and games, sport, innovations and inventions, fashion, a lot of design, of course, comes all through this. But we've also got the big events like the 1851 exhibition. We've got the... uh, the royal events as well which is so much part of the current theme and with the jubilees and so on
1: well this is very very striking yes we've got the queen the image of the queen here being used to advertise wills's cigarettes queen's honey soap what do we have up here keen's mustard another picture of her majesty in a way i think that the the queen now would not accept at all using yeah. her image for this sort of promotion
2: Times have changed and at this time in Victorian times it was very much let's grab any celebrity and, and uh, embrace them and, and although WG Grace did at one time support uh, Coleman's Mustard I'm sure he was paid for that and we had many of the theatrical girl wonders of the time supporting um, products like pear Soap but in fact um, it, it became a little bit of a scandal, here we've got a, a, a song sheet with is uh, Gladstone on the front in a bit of a rant saying, oh the Jubilee and he's throwing his arms up in the air because every product you can think of has now got a Jubilee reference in front of it, so you've got uh, Jubilee rat catchers through to Jubilee pills and, and Jubilee braces and probably everything else you can think of so it's, it's like the consumer world has suddenly twigged that getting something that is relevant to today um, at that time will sell your product there's nothing new in this in one sense it's just that it's now becoming much more tangible and the ability to promote things has becoming much more widespread and, and uh, in a sense, a little bit more irritating. So, uh, you know, we think we're plundered with uh, too many advertising today. Well, they were certainly at it in late Victoria times in much the same way. Is it possible
1: to say anything about advertising restrictions or limits to this sort of thing? I presume there must have
2: been some. All the time new regulations were coming in, and we were talking about adulteration a little bit earlier, there were new acts coming in to prevent that. Not always totally effective, but all through this history, the, the government, have, or, or sometimes the industry itself, has introduced regulations and acts and and uh, various parliamentary things that have come through to try and control situations. So um, there's, no, there's nothing new in many ways, and, and some of these acts go back hundreds of years. What we haven't said
1: is that this is very beautiful beautifully lit of course In um, sort of, we've got dark walls here uh, a beautiful property as well with nice uh, uh, wood beams all around us but the dramatic lighting here really does show off uh, some of the images and uh, at the end here we've got uh, another enormous gramophone we're not far away, as you mentioned, from Portobello Road, and, of course, some of the shops there
2: are distinctly similar to this. Well, they used to be. I think Portobello's changing all the time, and it's, it's, it's changed a little bit more than I'd hoped because I used to pick up all kinds of wonderful things there, which is much more difficult to find some of them today. But we're now looking forward, for instance, in, into the next era, which is the Edwardians, and all the time you can see the changes that are happening. Now, first of all, there is the first bottle of Perrier, here is the introduction of milk chocolate. You can see the well-known Fry's Five Boys coming in in 1902. Here also, in terms of, of technology, and big excitement for, for a lot of women, I suppose, at that time, was the, the new fangled vacuum cleaners that uh, didn't weren't powered by electricity to begin with, but nevertheless electricity was now being introduced. Now you've got one of the very first um, heaters, electric heaters. Here you've got the arrival of the Brownie camera, and you say the are becoming much more exciting and advanced but also you know if you look at the toys of this period the toys rarely affect modern society so here you've got aeroplanes now making their way motoring games because the motor car is really the new big technical innovation but there also you've got the very first ping pong sets so you get a real feel of what's happening throughout this story which were all apart.
1: When you look at these items, are you, uh, is there a memory associated with them of first encountering them?
2: Uh, there is for an awful lot of these things. I'm, I'm now looking from a different point of view in the thinking here, but if I really was to focus down to individual items, yes, of course I can remember the excitement of finding so many of these things. But to me, it's not the individual items themselves. It's collectively the story that it tells. And this is what I think so many of our visitors find. It's something In a sense, so unexpected, and yet because it's so everyday, often they're saying to themselves, How on earth do these things survive? And quite often I have to wonder sometimes how on earth they have survived because this is a very ephemeral product, and in some ways, the museum itself, just the very title packaging, is something which. shouldn't have survived because we all tend to chuck stuff away and that's the case even at this time and of course a lot of these things survive because they're tins they were made out of something much more permanent and therefore a tin is a very useful container to store your buttons in thereafter and I suppose a lot of these things have survived because of that but nevertheless cigarette packets or packets containing different types of Blancmange powders or tea packets at this time are incredibly difficult to find, and I'm still looking for some of those things that irk me that I haven't been able to find. It certainly can't hurt to put a shout out uh, for some of those items. What's missing from the collection? Well, I mean, much later on, when you get to the 1940s, that was the era of austerity, but nevertheless, it was the moment when spam arrived to save our battle worn. Uh, troops and 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 a lot of people on the home front Um, I cannot find a wartime can of spam nor can I find even though we're in the Edwardian era uh, a jar of marmite because it originally came out in an earthenware jar which was straight-sided with a label on it wasn't until 1925 that the shape we now utterly recognize for marmite kind of rounded bottle came about so i haven't got a pre-1925 jar of marmite and the last thing on my top three list and there are hundreds on the list in fact the last thing is actually a packet of cocoa pops the first one from 1960 surely someone's got one of those I'm not very good at cleaning my kitchen. I might have some of those items there (laughs) by default. I'd be thrilled if you could bring it in. (laughs) I I like the fact that you've got those top three to hand in your mind. Well, because I'm always ranting on about these things to anybody who cares to listen. (laughs) There are many, many, many more, I'm afraid. And every year... I hopefully will find one in my top 1,000 things I'm looking for. And, of course, all the time I'm finding things which I never knew existed. And that's what makes this this world that I live in so extraordinary because there are things that, you know, unless they turn up, you just didn't know they were going to be around. So you get people bringing things to you? We do, um, but I'm out the whole time looking, you know, in in antiques fairs and other collectors and and all kinds of different places, just because some of these things you think were made in their millions. Surely one has survived. The trouble is a lot of things don't survive, and that's really why I've done this. It's to keep a record of this really transient society a society which is is forever changing and yet we need to keep a reference point because unless we've got that we don't know how much we've changed whether we're changing for the better and indeed looking back you can see how far we've progressed and it gives you an insight into what might be happening in the future and this of
1: course being able uh, almost to reach out and touch the items it brings them to life in a way that seeing them on the net simply can't i'm drawn to this picture up here, there's two uh, very well-dressed ladies, one with a fan, both of them looking re- as though they're ready to go to a ball. Uh, Look at my electric wiring, says one of them, and she's gesturing towards uh, what must be a very newfangled light switch with a cable leading up from it, illuminating
2: the room. Well, it just shows how some of these the attitudes of the time, I mean, for instance, in, an, in the same case, we've got these vacuum cleaners, but they actually had parties to show how the vacuum cleaner worked and then someone would demonstrate. So they would be invited Ryan to so your, your local uh, well-to-do personage and they would have this vacuum-cleaning party and the demonstration would be the wonder of the moment. The
1: suits on the men seem to be changing, the hat's getting broader, the design's a little sharper, shall we say. Uh, we're into Price's toilet soaps, and Benson's Super Cream Hydro Toffee. I'm not sure I trust that product.
2: Uh, Which which era are we edging into? We're now into the 1910s. This is the era of the Great War. Um, This is the one we're about to celebrate next year, the 100th anniversary of the beginning of this horrible, dramatic, but rather uh, kind of uh, an era which has transformed society in many ways. It wiped out a whole generation. And after the 1910s and and into the 20s, of course, women then started to transform themselves because they'd gone through this really quite uh, aggressive emancipation moment and there were lots of suffragettes on the street and we have suffragette postcards and so on here as well to to kind of tell that social story but this is a story which in many ways you know it transcends everything else during the last hundred years it was um, an unbelievably uh, difficult time for many people and and millions of course were killed so the pre-war moment the kind of Victorian-Edwardian age, then morphs into something in the 20s and 30s which is utterly different in many social terms. But in many ways, the brands um, retain the image that they were there before the war and maintain it through the 20s and 30s. And that is, in many ways, um, one of the, the salient points that our trusted friends are still with us. Of course, when we get into the 20s, the design techniques of the time, the deco movement, starts to redress the uh, Victorian clutter. So into the 20s, we're now getting, for instance, the coming of radio. And of course, this year, in fact, we're celebrating 90 years of the Radio Times because that was launched in 1923. And I think we're getting our first glimpses of photographs in packaging as well Well, photographs have been around, obviously, for for a long time prior to this, and were used in many, many different ways. But it was unusual to use them uh, in packaging. But just occasion, as you've spotted here, Miltis' little princess, a reference to the current queen. Um, And there she is with her mum on the box of chocolates. Um, And there is... The Queen Mum also on a box of chocolates called the Duchess of York. That's before, of course, she became Queen. And, and oh, she really was. then her Bonham Carter as well. Well, heard of them? Well, she she was one of the, the <laughs> she was one of the great um, glamour girls of the era. Um, and, and and of course that wonderful reference point. The extraordinary thing is, how did they persuade her to actually have a product named after her with her image on it? I don't know. Do you you think it was down to slightly less cynicism?
1: Uh, about uh, sort of commercial aims was there a more generous disposition towards branding
2: in general it's very difficult i mean there is this transition from the victorian times when queen victoria would be roped in and you would see her in a carriage drinking cocoa uh, you know the named product really as far as that product yes and this this was um, quite radical in today's terms and that was not only frowned upon at the time but they actually regulated to remove all that so by the 1920s that that couldn't be done, it had to be done with the authority of the particular member of the royal family so um, things did change um, and, but to be honest in this year I'd love to know exactly what went on and I, I've not found anybody I can ask yet
0: Londonist Out Loud is available free as a stream at londonist.com or a weekly download via iTunes. Hit us up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud. Tweet at Londonist Sound and check out images of our guests via the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram.
1: I'm drawn to the left as we move between these two ranks of products and we've got here uh, what's clearly a wireless set is that a
2: that's not a crystal set is it well we've got two types of sets here the crystal set and the valve set the valve set was far more expensive here for instance is perhaps a pinnacle of the the valve sets it would have cost in today's terms about £2,000. We should have a bit of a description, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very difficult to describe these things. It's better to see them. But it's got this amazing aerial on its top to actually get you in touch with pretty well anywhere in the world. Uh, so that, that looks pretty startling at the time. Um, and, of course, the aerials were very much part of the system here on this box uh, a wireless, the great wireless game called Listen In <laughs> and uh, the, the actual aerial is strung up rather like uh, a washing line outside in, in, in the garden um, and that's to catch you know, the reception, get a better reception um, and of course the vowel set's were were better for doing that than the crystal sets themselves and and the cat's whisker was a kind of well-known kind of uh, acronym for the for the for the 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 connecting moment to to actually make your radio work um but here we've got quite a nice selection of different types of radios um, with their independent speakers and also the way that those um portrayal of of this particular radio, radio moment was put out in kind of comedy um, you've got here a woman and it's titled Listen In Hi, just broadcaster my bill at the Crown and Anchor that if he ain't home in 10 minutes, there's trouble brewing. And she's talking into the wireless set, thinking she's connecting. And (laughs) unfortunately, of course, she isn't. So, I mean, just like today, we don't understand modern technology. Of course, the introduction of the radio meant they had not a clue, really, what was going on either. It was a, a magical thing that suddenly you could get something live happening out of something which you'd never seen before in your life. So, for instance, when, in 1924, the king opened the Empire Exhibition at Wembley, he was able to broadcast to 5 million people, and that was unheard of. And not only that, this was 5 million people hearing the king's voice for the very first time. Absolutely beautiful. Um,
1: Before we go a step further... Listener, you've got to come here. There's far more than we could. A, a lot of museums, you know, we can, we can pick out some of the highlights and give a general sense. I really think you could spend uh, a, a good few days camped out here and, and not even begin to see every little uh, item. As, as you say, there's, there's a lot of stories being told here, and there's so much detail on each one. Anybody who's interested in history, contemporary history, art and design you've got to pay a visit here we should in fact let's just uh name the address uh, so that people can find it because it's it's in that awkward area sort of notting hill uh
2: kensington in that uh, lots of labyrinthine roads
1: going on there where where exactly
2: are we the first thing to say really is do pick up a map because you can download it from our website museumofbrands.com do get one of those because even people who've been here before sometimes can be a little confused we're very close to portobello road we're about three minutes away from there Lonsdale Road is the, is the road to connect to, but we're actually in Colville-Mews. Now, there are lots of different Colvilles around, yes. and that's why I say get a map, because you can spend a little bit of extra time trying to find us, if you don't know exactly where we are. Um, we have a couple of signs outside, but do make sure you get that map. And, and you'll know you're
1: in the right place, because the building next to yours is very conveniently plastered an enormous Union Jack across their building. So if you look down at Mews and you see that, you're... You're there, <laughs> that's absolutely right. We can. We're clearly
2: in uh, flapper territory here. Now we're getting into Great Gatsby territory. Of course, this is now coming back into 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 people's minds, and and this was this was a, a really distinctive moment because, you know, we'd just been through the era of the First World War when so many young men were killed. Of course, women now wanted to make their mark to attract those young men who are still around, and not only were they raising their hemline, not only above the ankle which was fairly outrageous but even up to the knee which was just really something else but they were also bobbing their hair for the first time shingling it cutting it back they were doing other slightly outrageous things like smoking in public and all these things meant that the whole new kind of design came through in terms of fashion and it it was really colorful and energetic So this was a big moment, and and certainly when we look back at the 1960s with the miniskirt, no, we'd been doing this a lot earlier.
1: We can see here plenty of magazines and publications and journals here, jumpers and knitting, uh, leeches, jumpers and jumper suits, jumper suits. weldon's journal weldon's seemed to have
2: the market uh, well stitched up here if you'll forgive the absolutely pass. right yes you got it um weldon's magazine was was the kind of foremost magazine to take to be able to design and create your own clothes so there were patterns inside and if you couldn't like so many people couldn't afford to buy from the couturier to get their own designs um and off the peg in, in today's modern sense was really a very new thing here was a magazine that you could actually stitch up your own outfit from um and and of course so much cheaper what does that tell us about class class is a very difficult thing because so many of the things we see around us are aspirational so many of the advertisements kind of want to make you feel that if you're engaging in that particular product or brand this is what you're aspiring to and that was everything which we still feel today about advertising it's very much um upward thinking But, of course, there was huge um, distinctions between the classes, the, the, the working class. A lot of people couldn't afford the new brands coming through. But in many ways, when you look at this museum and you go through the story, what you're seeing is that everything starts off, in general terms, as a luxury. So when Mr. Heinz brought his tomato ketchup through in late Victorian times, it was seen as being a very exotic brand. He went to Faulkner Mason's to sell his new range of products. And then slowly that went into many, many other stores. So by the time you get to the 20s and 30s, and particularly after the Second World War, it's something which everybody can afford. And that's the same with every sort of piece of technology. You know, the fridge was around in the 1920s. But it wasn't probably until the 60s that most people had a fridge. The motor car arrived in late Victorian times. It wasn't again until the 1970s that most people could afford a motor car. So every type of new whatever is tending to be a luxury, it's expensive, but as they sell more, as we have a better standard of living and we have more disposable income, we're able to afford more, that means the manufacturer can make more and it becomes cheaper. So it's a rolling process that has really, until the 1980s, most people couldn't afford everything. I suppose by the 80s and the 90s and today, we feel actually we're a much better off society and we can buy into the latest piece of technology much quicker than we could before one of the exceptions to that is what we've just been talking about the radio the valves radios were expensive the crystal sets were much cheaper you could make them yourself and therefore as a diy kit it was actually very practical and therefore this new technology really spread out very very quickly as unlike the new television sets, as we move into the 1930s now, there is one of the very first TV sets with this, by today's standard, a microscopic actual screen, and it's incorporated into a radio as well. That's probably only six inches across.
1: That's an incredible... Yes, if that, that's an incredible... Set nearly entirely made out of wood, except for the uh, sort of portal screen there.
2: Only in London could you pick up a, a regular service, and indeed, you know, up until the end of the 30s, only two thousand of these sets were actually available in London at any one time. So it's a, a very upmarket luxury, um, only in one area. But nevertheless, here it is, the earliest of the of the TV sets.
1: We've got Huntley and Palmer's Games Chocolate, Jacob's uh, 1934 assorted, I presume that might be uh, Biscuit's, crawford's four o'clock afternoon tea biscuit oh that's wonderful to specify four <laughs> o'clock <afternoon laughs> well of
2: tea. course i mean only at four o'clock can you have really have afternoon tea and there course you've got jacob's club you know the, the milk chocolate biscuit that's a, a new arrival as well um here you've got vita wheat coming in uh, a, along with a, its predecessor rye vita so this is a great slimming era all kinds of new slimming products because of course women were dressing now in this slim line figure they wanted the the healthy um nourishing, yet unhampered with the kind of calorie counts of today. So everything in this museum, and this is what I find so exciting, is there are many, many different strands which make up, when you join them all together, the fabric of this society, which now envelops us on an everyday life.
1: We are going to fast forward through a couple of decades which is a reckless thing to do but there's uh well for one thing i want to leave you listener, with something to come and have a look at that we haven't already described no risk of uh, covering everything i can see that we're moving past snow white and uh, more than seven dwarfs a lot of representations of dwarfs and indeed other disney figures here we've got mickey mouse we move through past Bourneville, coco and we've got a lot of Soldiers starting to appear, the Home Guard Humour book up here.
2: But all the time, the new products are coming onto the market. You've got these new soap powders, these detergents, Daz, Omo, Tide, Fab, and so many things that are just now becoming much more colourful because of this self-service store. They had to shout off the shelf. And when they look at this classic kind of, what you might call this kind of um, Andy Warhol-type graphic for surf, with its very kind of pop art feel. Stand there. Yes, well, I mean, in the 50s, you know, not only do we have these new um, space-age feelings, and particularly Dang Dare was one of those iconic products, um, but also this is the television era. This is when television really starts to dictate what children are interested in, and not only do we have programmes represented through the games like Wacko with Jimmy Edwards, but also the characters which are still around, Andy Pandy, Sooty, um, and indeed Muffin the Mule. But perhaps you won't know, but a lot of your listeners might do, you've got Mr Turnip and a cowboy called Hank now they were great characters of their time but they've sort of disappeared into the kind of ether Some—I mean, it is extraordinary how some products, some characters have this annual um, feeling of continuing all the way through um, from one generation to the next other great characters of this era just totally evaporate do you remember them? No. Oh. (laughs) Well, you're right, they they did evaporate. (laughs) You mustn't forget that not everybody had a television set, and my parents didn't have a television set, so I didn't actually start watching television until probably the late 1960s, so perhaps I was a little bit deprived. I had other things on my mind. I was collecting things. (laughs) Now, I, this is, is this the reason that you
1: don't use email? Because you, I think you are the person who doesn't use email. I'm, I'm very proud you know, to I, know you.
2: <laughs> well, I, frankly, I am so busy. I've got so many things I should be doing that to have a, something that is going to be yet another distraction, and perhaps it's, I, I will get into it eventually. I mean, I cannot not do that. But just give me a few more years. Maybe maybe a little bit later on this year. You'll be able to get in touch with me on email. But it's, it's another world, isn't it? I, I rather admire. That uh, putting your foot down on that
1: issue. We are now looking at all sorts of Heinz products ahead of us. And uh, Kellogg's cornflakes seem to be making an appearance.
2: You, you, you do a lot of work with uh, individual brands from time to time. Yes, I mean we get a lot of brand owners come here because, of course, they use the museum. and We have a conference room here as well to use the museum as a kind of uh, a, a way of of, of getting a, a, an, an interest, shall we say, in the past, but using the past to see almost where they're going in the future because there's so many lessons here of things that have gone wrong for manufacturers you can learn the lessons by looking at what's happened before now when i was in market research and you know, i spent 16 years in market research in the, from the 60s um I was seeing things all the time that were happening, but of course what I hadn't necessarily understood to begin with is that so many of these brands have a history, and a very interesting history. They've gone through a lot of things. Many brands have disappeared, but of course so many have survived. And it's understanding why and how these brands have survived, which is very useful for brands today to get the understanding of how brands can go wrong and those, those mistakes a lot of brands continue to make they forget that customers rarely are interested in, in their products and if you d- disconnect your product from the consumer then of course you're not going to have that friendship that I've been talking about. Can we look at a specific example of that, that sort of a failure? Is there something By here? The t- that- By the time we get to the branding section, we can see it. But before that, we're going to force you through your nostalgia moments in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. Right. <laughs> here we go. So this is the moment to scream out when you see something from your childhood. I often say to people, if you don't want to give your age away, make sure you don't scream at the wrong time.
1: Now, do I try and trick him, listener? Do I pop back to the Victorian section? Oh, look, a typewriter. Well, we've got Captain. Uh, we've got plenty of Captain Scarlet, uh, Cindy Thunderbirds. There's a definite theme going on in that case. The Beatles, an absolutely hideous branded guitar. Uh, just w- while we're looking at this enormous display case full of Beatles paraphernalia and memorabilia and related books and models of the Fab. Three in one of the uh, instances there they seem to be missing somebody um, w- what was the situation with, uh, with with music, was this the first example of a, a band being branded or did, does that go way back
2: it does go way back, everything always goes back much further than you think and we, we floated by in the 1930s the beginning of what I see as the kind of fullness of the confectionery moment when brands like Mars Bars and Maltesers and Milky Ways and Rolos and Quality Street and Black Magic and um, roses, uh, uh, chocolates and and so many, many brands at that time were, were starting their, their journeys. You get um, um, Smarties, for instance, starting in the 1930s and these are brands which we all think actually came out when we first discovered them but in fact no, our parents and a lot of our grandparents were enjoying them and that is a general theme throughout this museum. It's actually full of surprises. You learn so much. You learn things which I think you should be taught at school but of course you never are and it gives you a real kind of grounding as to how the the roots of our social um, story have come about i mean it it has so many things in it that you can start to understand and appreciate and sometimes i meet people who have been here many times and they're still seeing things that they hadn't understood from their first or second visits so that's that personal connection that you're talking about the, the idea that we've Uh, We're the first people to discover a product. We we always think that you know. I can remember meeting somebody and they were looking in the seventies case, and there was a Crunchy Bar, and say, oh yes, I remember when the Crunchy Bar came out. And then somebody looked back and they said, oh, but hang on, there's a Crunchy Bar in the nineteen sixties. So at that moment, I came up and said, well, actually, the Crunchy Bar was launched in nineteen twenty nine. And you know, absolute gas. That it wasn't brought out for them as they see it. It was actually brought out generations before that. We've got some dolls here, sort of
1: eight-inch dolls from a particular film of the 70s. I'm sure nobody's going to be interested in this. These are not the droids we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Star Trek game we've got at the top. Help the crew of Enterprise defeat the dreaded Klingons. And an an excellent uh, Captain Kirk doll here. With uh, the only problem that I can see with that is he's got his phaser strapped underneath his crutch i don't know who's responsible for that but it's
2: the safest place i think isn't
1: it <laughs> well, for whom <laughs> and we've got charles and diana commemorative tea towels holographic rice krispies boxes hulk hogan bubble bath we're getting closer and closer to uh, the present day quite clearly Now, okay, this is the first time actually you're you're gesturing here, Robert, towards a display case full of well, drinks cartons, disposable drinks cartons, and do you know what, this is really the first time that I've thought, ah, oh, there's this rubbish in the museum."
2: <laughs> rubbish only in the, in the sense that it has been discarded as opposed yeah. well of course, I mean, here for instance I mean, just shows what I've been doing over the last year or so is gathering together this new phenomenon of these energy drinks, I mean they've been around for a while now, but the, the, the variety is just f- fantastic, I mean it was bad enough when I was collecting the Alka Pops in the 90s, but here with the energy drinks and I just love all these things that's you know Tiger Boost Shark I mean you know they're wonderful names and a lot of them are going to disappear over the next few years and so I've been trying to keep a record of as many ones I can find you know Hell dynamite you know it's it are, they are dynamite you know they're just wonderful and people if we think of it in the future you know maybe in 30 or 40 years time we'll be looking back at these with, with awe and wonder that was such a big market why don't people use those little tablets we can have you know in 30 or 40 years you know you never know what's going to change and therefore you have to keep a record of what's happening you know here you've got fair trade you know these are things that are all contemporary at this particular moment Uh, You know, eggs for soldiers, and they've got the help for heroes on there. So all these things very much of of the time, you know, in the same way as you might not think that preservatives was a great issue back in the 1920s organically grown material was something which was being put onto cereal packets in the 1970s. These things often happen much earlier than we think, but it's that big mass market which I'm particularly interested in. When do these things rarely happen? You know, when was it that these products... You know, for instance, when do you think washing-up liquid arrived?
1: When do I think washing-up
2: liquid arrived? Um,
1: or oh, Let's go for... The, uh, is, it, it resonates with the sort of the,
2: what you're telling me about the 20s, the tens, the 20s. Ah, you see, you've predated it. People were using washing up liquids rarely in the 1950s. The very first one actually arrived in 1948. But the thing is, how did people use? You know, what did people use for washing up their utensils before then? Yes, what did they use? Well, <laughs> plenty of different ways. They either used a lot of very hot water, and then put in a little bit of um, detergent powder or or before then just ordinary washing powder or they used to chop up, you know, a bar of sunlight soap. And in fact, something that they used to wash their clothes with or wash themselves with or wash their house with was used for pretty well everything. So, you know, a, a brand, for instance, like Hudson Soap, particularly, was advertised to wash their knives and forks and plates with. So there were lots of products focused on that, but they were more general products that used for washing all kinds of different things. So when the new type of washing-up liquid arrived, that was a great uh, advance, shall we say, because, of course, it did perform a lot better. Here we've got the story of Bourneville Cocoa. Now, that arrives in 1908, and you can see how it starts off in a very strident, very powerful orange, uh, and with a deeper orange uh, colour combination very vibrant, very, very stylistic for the era and they maintain that visual representation, that visual image all the way through until the Second World War. Then it goes into its wartime jacket, so to speak, where the label has been reduced to save on paper, and then it continues pretty much as it was after the war, but then in the 50s it becomes even more vibrant as if that was possible, and they start to put on the cakes that you can make with the cocoa and so on. Then it gradually changes and morphs from one design to another. But the big thing that's changing is the word Cadbury is introduced in the 50s and the word Bourneville is reduced in size. And that continues from one decade to the next until eventually it's just the word Cadbury and it's then called Cadbury Coco. The curious thing is that very recently, in the last few years, the word Bourneville has come back again. Now, I don't know quite what the reasoning is behind that, but, of course, at the same time, the vibrant orange has changed into the, the purple and then into a much kind of deep red. So you get a, a, a purple and deep red visual image. Yes, there's more a sense of sort of sophistication and luxury in those later versions. And, of course, chocolate is becoming more expensive to buy. So I suppose you need that rather, in a sense, regal feeling about it, which gives you, uh, uh, in a sense, a much tastier content, because the visual image is very much part of that taste that we actually have, because we, we do taste with our eyes as well as our tongue. Can we uh, focus on failure? What can we find here in terms of products that uh, have put a foot wrong somewhere along the line? Well, um, I, I sometimes think that every brand here has tripped up somewhere along the way, um, and I suppose it's inevitable that every brand in some ways will. Um, but I suppose the, the ones that have had um, a little bit more of a problem sometimes are when they've changed several things at the same time. Now, there's one classic brand here, Johnson's Baby Powder, which has had a very long and interesting history. And it's essentially, in the early part of its history, it's actually very similar. Um, Starts off in a tin, maintains the tin from the 20s through the 30s until the 1950s and 60s. And then in the 70s, they make a change. They go into plastic, which is probably a very good idea. It's seen as being more hygienic. But at the same time, they actually give a waste to the product. So it feels as if you can hang on to it um, more kind of user-friendly. And again, uh, probably a good thinking about it, but they also change the lid. And they change the lid only in the colour to pink. Now, for some reason, people probably took exception to three changes at once. It was one thing to get over the difference in feel from 10 to plastic, but the wasted side was then dropped in favour of just the straight-sided, and indeed the pink top was dropped as well. Now, I'm perhaps prejudging this as as a mistake, but sometimes you have to make, make those kind of mistakes to understand the customer, and the customer is king as always. So they did revert back to something which was much more... Um, in the in the guise of what they were used to before they made those three changes at the same time.
1: I'm reluctantly beginning to be aware that we have to move out of the exhibition altogether. I could spend uh, a long time in here. Where are you going to build into next, Robert? It seems as though every square inch of the place is... Well, have you plans for expansion?
2: <laughs> well, it's, just, it's always nice, but the trouble with the expansion, it needs finance, and without finance we're not able to do very much more. But nevertheless, you know, I always have great ambitions about extending this museum and showing a lot more of the collection because we don't show very much of it, even though at the moment there's pretty well more than most people can take in at one visit. But it is really a, a place to be inspired by, but also join it up with ideas of where you fit into this story, where your parents and grandparents fit into the story, but also bring your children because life is always changing. And I think if you're trying to understand your own family, try and come here to see what has happened, to to gain from the experiences, to, to trigger off ideas. And it's great for I mean, particularly when you get two generations or even three generations coming here because they all see things in a totally different way. You know, mum will be saying... I can remember the days when I had to do this and it always sounds very arduous and her daughter will be saying to her children "But I can remember when it was not quite as bad as that but it was pretty bad and you've got it so good today and their children will be saying one day to their children hang on, life is so much more difficult. We all have an experience here and the general theme is that life actually becomes more convenient it's just that we don't notice it and here is the evidence that it has Robert Opie I have only uh, one final question which is what's the website the museumofbrands.com you'll find some interesting facts and some interesting figures there but do get the map before you arrive <laughs>
1: Robert Opie thanks so much thank you And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Robert Opie. Thanks, too, to Becca Evans and Bernie Barkley. Theme and in incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe.
0: Inch by inch Waiting for the river's care Straining for the blueing waves Calling from the shore The sunlight.
2: felt. Now imagine them getting